Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. Today I'm joined by Nicholas Royal, a mainstay of the British literary scene for the past 20 years or so. He's the author of four short story collections and seven novels, and he's also the editor of more than 20 short story collections, many of which include the annual Best British Short Stories anthologies. He's also the owner of Nightjar Press, a publisher which specialises in signed limited edition chapbooks, publishing writers such as M. John Harrison and Booker Prize shortlisted Alison Moore. He's a man of letters and literature, and it's perhaps no surprise Nicholas has a lot to say about books. White Spines, Confessions of a Book Collector, published by Salt, is a memoir where we see him trawling the country for secondhand copies of the famous Picador books. Launched in the 70s, they became known for their iconic White Spines. And Nicholas' book, White Spines, is on the surface about book collecting, but it's also about the strange economy and circulation of books, how they get passed from one hand to another, and the weird and wonderful ways of the publishing industry. It's a book which, as the critic Alex Preston said, you might be treasuring as much as Nicholas treasures his beloved Picadors. He joins me from Manchester. Can we just go back to that moment uh, you picked up Ice by Anna Kavan? The autumn of 1982, and you're in Scoob Books, a bookshop located in Sicilian Avenue, Bloomsbury, London. And in the book, White Spines, you talk about the shop had this wall of white spines, white yeah. book spines, which when you found on close inspection, they were Picadors. Uh, it's here that you say that you learned there's something special about Picadors. And what was it? They were gathered together. Somebody had gone to the trouble of gathering them together and establishing this separate shelf. Well, not just shelf, but a, a wall of shelves, an entire wall in this bookshop uh, with all of these white spines. And I thought, why would you do that? Well, I, I'm trying to work out how many years later. But some years later, I realised I was doing the same thing myself. I mean, I picked out Ice by Anna Kavan, the book that you mentioned, because of the cover. I've bought, I don't know, loads of copies of this book, this edition of this book over the years uh, to give to uh, friends as presents. In fact, I've given a number of copies of it to one particular friend. I don't quite know how that started, but I've probably given her half a dozen copies over the years. Um, has a painting on the cover by a Belgian surrealist artist called Paul Delvaux, who is my, he's probably my favorite visual artist of all time. So I was really struck by that cover. Uh, I bought the novel, I read the novel, it was amazing. It's unique. Sometime later, I bought another book by Anna Kavan, also a Picador, with another cover by Paul Delvaux. And it was clear to me, I think, that, um, that there was something special about this publisher. I mean, those are two great covers um, and they're two great books. She's a great writer. I think it was Christmas 1983 that my parents gave me a book for Christmas uh, called Blackwater, uh, a big, thick anthology of short stories, almost a thousand pages. Uh, Blackwater, the Anthology of Fantastic Literature, edited by Alberto Manguel. Those are the first two Picadors that uh, that I owned. Certainly the copy of Blackwater that I've still got is the one that my parents gave me in 1983. Um, and in fact, I've got two copies of it now because I found a copy. Uh, I tell this story in White Spines. I found a copy in my local Oxfam last year or the year before or the year before that. Um, that I realised when I read the inscription in it had been donated to Oxfam by a friend of mine 
um, and it had been given to her by a friend of hers, and it had been inscribed by by that uh, woman. Um, and I love stuff like that. If you'd said to me ten years ago, would you rather have a an unmarked secondhand book in pristine condition, or would you rather have one that maybe contains underlinings or has a bit of you know, has a boarding card stuck in it or has the previous owner's name written in it or an inscription. I might have said, I'll take the pristine copy, please. Whereas now, I would far prefer one that bears some trace of the book's history, um, like a former own, owner's name or a message of some kind. I just love that stuff. It, it adds other dimensions to uh, to the life of the book for me. So it is a Rippling Pages podcast and Nicholas is rippling through some of these Fantastic um, looking books. Yeah, I don't know if the microphone is picking this up. But you did say there's a few, so there's a few different things in there. There's something about the publisher. There's something about the kind of mysticism of secondhand books. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the publisher and pick it on. Why at this particular time, as you said, some of these books were that had already been published by other publishers. So were these kind of books that hadn't received, were they giving them another chance? I haven't examined, um, I suspect maybe it was a little bit of the two, but probably more of the former. So I think they were picking on books that had been landmark books. And there wasn't the same culture then that we have now of, if a book is published in hardback, it's almost assumed it will come out in paperbacks six to 12 months later. Of course, that doesn't happen in all cases. If if your book comes out in hardback and sells about five copies, then maybe there's not going to be a, a paperback edition. Um, but what Picador were doing was finding books that had already been published, usually in hardback, especially at the time, given that that was the way that books were published. But but they were picking on books that they thought were special. I've got to agree with them. I think I've read all eight of those that they launched with in the autumn of 1972. They're all special books. This is called The Lorry by Peter Walu, W-A-H-L-O-O. And this is one of the eight that Picador started with in the autumn of 1972. I mean, I'd, I'd heard of Peter Walu, but I didn't know anything about him. And it's an amazing book. And I absolutely loved it. I was gripped by it. 250 pages. I, I tend to regard that these days as quite a long read because um, I really, really like short books. Ice by Anna Caban is a very short book, only 120 pages. Uh, but Peter Walu's novel I only read when I was writing White Spines, absolutely loved it. One of, it's probably my favourite of the first eight, that, that, that the launch titles that Picador started with. Great cover as well by Salvador Dali. They, they did go in for these surrealist covers. So you so you found this first book in 1982, but when did you when were you provoked then to write this book? Because you, you it wasn't from there on in that you, you became this collector that you sort of reckon, recognize yourself as now, is it? No, it took some years. I mean, I, I already had inside me a sort of uh, drive towards collecting. I'd been a collector of various different things since I was a child, um, whether it's train numbers or whether it was bus de destination blinds. All sorts of, I mean, I did collect books, but I, I wasn't seriously collecting. I, I mean, I, over the years, I re, I suppose I realised that I was buying more and more Picadors and, and I did start shelving them together. And it slowly dawned on me that I was recreating this 
image that I'd seen when I'd entered school books in 1982, this collection of all white books. It, I mean, the, they could have been any color, you know, it's not that they're white, but um, they did happen to be white. Yeah, probably 2017, 2018, because around about that time, I had started doing something that I'd last done a long, long time ago when I was, well, around about 1982, when I, around about that time, and indeed for a few years earlier, I'd been keeping notebooks um, full of film reviews. So whenever I saw a film, whether it was on telly or at the Film Society at school or the Film Society at the University of Manchester, I would go home and I'd write it up in these blue notebooks that I had, blue exercise books, and I'd write a little review and I, I read those now and I cringe because they're... But I've still got them. I wouldn't give those books up for anything. You know, the fact that the, the, the reviews that I wrote at the time made me cringe doesn't matter to me. It's the fact that I'm, I kept those records and it was very important for me to do that. And around about 2017, 2018, I started doing that again. Social media played a part in this. I started at the end of every month, I would start, I would say, okay, here's a picture of the six books I read this month. And then, you know, very briefly, this is what I thought of them. And at the same time, I had started keeping a record of the secondhand bookshops and the charity shops that I was going to and the books that I was buying. I found that I enjoyed doing this and it added to my enjoyment of the activity itself of, of haunting secondhand bookshops and um, looking for books to add to my collection. And so I suppose once I'd started writing that, at some point, after I'd started doing that, I just, I suppose it occurred to me, there's a possible book here. And um, when I suggested that to Salt, they said yes. And, and so there we go. And then I wrote the book surprisingly quickly. Normally I'm a slow writer. I, it takes me a long time to write a novel, um, but I wrote White Spines quite quickly. Um, and that's partly thanks to the fact that I'd got all these notes that I'd been making for a couple of years and partly down to lockdown in, um, in 2020. Um, uh, so I would. But it's really absorbing. It's really interesting how it becomes this story about how you, you really are sort of traversing across the UK. It feels like you are. And I appreciate that's not, not necessarily happening in real time or anything, but it feels like you sort of, dotting about the country, going to all these different bookshops and all these kind of strange and wonderful places, some not so strange and wonderful places. It feels like you're on this kind of hunt for these books. Yeah, so I suppose in a sense it's a quest. Mm. It's a quest to, to, to try to get, to try to collect all of the Picadors because at, at some point I decided that's what I was doing. I mean, Picador is still publishing. Um, so it, I, I wasn't trying to buy or find and buy every book that Picador has ever published up to the present day, um, because it seemed to me that um, there was a sort of cutoff point around about 19, well, not around about, it was 1999 stroke 2000, when they abandoned this uniform look that they'd always had of the white spine uh, with the black type. So I decided that I would try to collect all the Picador books published between autumn 1972 and 1999-2000, when they abandoned the, the white spine. You know, people would say, have you got them all yet? And I would say, well, I don't know. Um, and I almost don't want to know. Well, not almost, I don't want to know. 
um, because I like the fact that I can still go out now and go to an Oxfam bookshop or a secondhand bookshop and not know if I'm going to find a Picador to add to the collection. Even if it's only a, a different edition of a book I've already got, um, if it's, you know, when when Picador did two or three or more editions of the same title with different covers, I, I try and get them all. Um, so sometimes I find a new one of those, or sometimes I find a book that I don't have at all in any edition to add to the collection, and it's I find that really exciting. I'd find it much less exciting. I'd probably find it kind of it would feel more like a duty, a, a sort of um, a chore if I had a list of all the books they'd published up to 1999 stroke 2000, and I was just ticking them off. It's not an exercise in ticking things off. I like the fact that when I go out, I don't know what I'm going to find. This is a word that you've used a couple of times now, dimensions. Hmm. And there is the dimension of the hunt, the hunt to find mm. these books, you know, other aspects to it where you're sort of teasing yourself the words, but you're kind of closing off the possibility to kind of prevent the the the, the hunt ending, if you will, and sort of changing the parameters of that mm. of that hunt. I find this such a really interesting book about I don't know if it is obsessions, but collecting and perhaps that's for you to define if it's obsession or not, but mm. The book's called Confessions of a Book Collector. Yes, I think, I mean, you mentioned the word obsession or obsessive or obsessional. Definitely, I recognise that uh, there is that quality to it. Um, I, ha I I know that I have an obsessive streak in my personality, or, I mean, it might be more accurate to say I have an obsessive personality. Uh, and part of that expresses itself in this drive to collect. It's about finding things, coming across things. It, I, I love that, the element of randomness and chance. So I collect, I, as I've said before, I collect other things. I have collected other things in the past. And in more recent years, there are other things that I've started to collect at the same time as my collecting books has become more, um, as it's taken over more and more. I mean, this it's funny how, so in the last five to six years this has really become quite pronounced and probably my book collection has doubled or tripled in the last five years I would guess and I'm not quite sure why this is but it might I'm guessing it has something to do with getting older and there being this sense that my time is limited um, we all know that as you get older <laughs> you can't help but become more aware of this and uh, it's almost like I want to make the most of it i want to i want to read as many books as i can i want to see as many films listen to as many albums as i can collecting and finding a very similar kind of things you know we, we all go out every day perhaps and look around us in the world and and probably we ignore all sorts of things that we see but certain things that i see i've now started collecting like found playing cards um, it's amazing how when when you're looking for them, your eyes are open and and you're kind of you're alert anyway to the possibility that you might find a playing card. I now find them not every day and certainly not even every week, but maybe once a month I'll find a playing card or two. So I collect find playing cards, found playing cards. I've got a big, big, you know, probably two decks worth now of found playing cards. Similarly, found business cards. I'm all, always finding business cards in the street now. I collect those, um, found photographs. 
So it's about finding things that all these things are out there in the world. In the case of the photographs and the business cards and the playing cards, they're on the street, they're in the road. And I pick them up in the case of books, they're in bookshops or charity shops. Um, but it's, it's again, it's about finding they're all out there. And there's something serendipitous about going out one day and finding this book that you perhaps didn't even know that you wanted, but you see it and something about it appeals to you. Hi there, it's me, Liam Bishop, the host of the Rippling Pages podcast. Thanks very much for listening to today's episode. It's great to have you here. If you'd like to keep in touch and keep up to date with what's going on with the Rippling Pages podcast, why not follow me on social media? That's at Rippling underscore pages. That's at Rippling underscore pages. And that's for both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to send an email, you can do so via RipplingPagesPod at gmail.com. That's RipplingPagesPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. A lot of the book is spent within secondhand bookshops. And I know you've sort of spoken about, clearly the secondhand bookshop is a place for these writers that, that, I mean, I learned about some new writers in this book, a lot of new writers that are now out of print or fallen out of favor. And you, you bring a new life to, to, to writers that otherwise don't have as much of as much coverage now. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very interested writers who've fallen out of the public eye who aren't in print or who weren't in print for a long time, um, but who are good writers and, you know, I'm always very suspicious of market forces driving publishing. I prefer we'll publish this book because we think it's really good. And um, I'm not saying that publishers these days are not saying that, but they, they've got businesses to run. Uh, so I understand that, that they need to sell lots of books, but um, a lot of writers have been cast aside. If I have an opportunity, which perhaps this book presented me with, to shine a light on some of those writers who've been cast aside, then, then uh, you know, I was, I was pleased to take it. Not this, not your first novel, but your novel called First Novel, which I think is, ironically, your most recent yes, novel. Can you say that I can't work out what is more interesting? Either they are virtually identical. Or there are minor differences of appearance. One is creased along the top corner, the other slightly foxed along the bottom edge. I flick through both copies, one after the other. They smell exactly the same. They smell of secondhand bookshops, cardboard boxes, spilt tea, the faintest hints of cigarettes, futility, time. Yeah. And you could, it, 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 that's what you kind of, less so cigarettes, I guess, these days, but it is that something about that kind of smell that indicates a book of kind of timelessness and sort of, time you know yeah. an era gone past what is what what is it about the second bookshop and being in there and, and you've spoken about some of the things like finding sort of notes and, and things from people that have been left in like boarding cards and, and things like that but the whole economy of this the second bookshop is just really mystified in a, in a really wonderful way in in white spines obviously as white spines shows i also go on very precise directed journeys in order to visit secondhand bookshops. Um, so I'll take the train across the country or, or um, in order to go to particular secondhand bookshops because there is, I mean, they're all different, but at the same time, they're all kind of the same. 
again, I come back to this idea of chance and randomness. You don't know what's going to be in there. Whereas if you go to a branch of Waterstones, you know what's going to be in there. It's not to say I never go in Waterstones. I do. And I like Waterstones. But um, it doesn't smell the same. You know, I want, I want to go <laughs> in the second-hand bookshop. I prefer the smell of the second-hand bookshop. And in the case of charity bookshops, special mention should be made of certain branches of British Heart Foundation and Shelter and Crisis. Um, in those shops, there's the there's this other element of randomness and, and so on, in that their stock depends on entirely on what's being given to them, um, in most cases, by people who live nearby. And I find that really interesting. Mm. I mean, I find very interesting the fact that uh, where I live in South Manchester, in Didsbury and Chalton. In Chalton, they have a an Oxfam bookshop. In Didsbury, we have an Oxfam shop with a books section. Um, and that I would have thought that the two different demographics were very similar, but um, there's more going on in the uh, in the Chalton bookshop. Um, and the the books that are donated, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's there's maybe it's curation maybe ma the manager has a, a large role to play they're they're like um beacons for me in the uh in the landscape and the fact that there were there are fewer and fewer of them is a source of some sadness but there are still plenty of them yeah i, I mean you you mentioned a lot you mentioned a lot of bookshops in the book and Chance, I mean, I, I've seen some in there that I know. Uh, you mentioned some bookshops, um, and you mentioned Oxfam in Henley, which is great. Shop. Great, yeah, it's a very good shop. Uh, and there's there's loads of great books in there. Um, but obviously, I mean, I do you know how many you mentioned in the end? How many different bookshops you mentioned? No, I don't. But um, there's a reader, um, a former student of mine called Matthew Adamson, who probably does know because he decided that he would set out to visit all of them. Um, after the publication of the book, and I don't know how many he's done so far, but they're they're documented on his Twitter. Matthew Adamson. Well, good luck to Matthew. But yeah, maybe uh, maybe Waterstones can use that as their uh, uh, their slogan. We don't smell the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not like those ones that everyone else has touched. <laughs> well, you see, my wife my wife doesn't share my enthusiasm for secondhand bookshops um precisely because of that particular smell and atmosphere she doesn't want all that that and, and also the the randomness that i love you know there are different kinds of secondhand bookshops and different kinds of sec, um, secondhand booksellers some keep a very ordered shop and i really love that because you can go straight in and you can look um you know if you're thinking oh, i want to look out i want to find see if they've got any books by x you can go straight to x or actually what i tend to do is i go everywhere else first saving up x like i might save up the icing on a piece of christmas cake um and i'll look at x last which can lead to disappointment at the end of the the end of the visit when you don't find anything by x um there are these bookshops that are complete chaos like um i'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying the old peer bookshop in Morecambe. My wife won't go in there because uh, she you know, she took one look at it. She said, I'm not going in there. 
it's one of those bookshops where it, it almost looks as if it's made out of books. The line that you write is quite neatly is when you're talking about your collecting impulse, you put, if I'm going mad, at least I'm doing it in an ordered way. Yeah. Um, and I just found one of the kind of just ironies about certain things. And, and one of them is that sort of becoming apparent as we speak now is it's a book all about the kind of tactile nature, all about the kind of past few years we've been sort of in this pandemic. And mm-hmm. this book puts back into the limelight, you know, touching things and, and, and holding on to things that other people haven't held. And I don't know if within it, there is a community that it's trying to uh, promote and that, that we are all kind of in this sort of reading community. And- Get that completely. And that's a large part of it for me. Um, that's why I love to see a former owner's name in a book. And then I'll look that person up and I might, I might find a, uh, something about them and I won't necessarily know that it's the same person with that name as 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 uh, owned the book. In some cases, you can work out that it is. And that creates a sort of imaginary connection between me and that person. But you also reflect on you sharing a name with yeah. another writer. And it's yeah. just one of these sort of neat, Strange little line is about the kind of the uncanniness of these books, the uncanniness of the relationship between all these different books. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you think it was important that you sort of wrote about you and other writers sharing a name with other writers in, in White Spines? We both submitted some stories to the same magazine. They were all rejected, but they were all sent back to him. That's despite the fact that my stories had my address on them. Uh, so that then gave him my address so he sent me my stories back to Matt. you know obviously when you're writing the name is vitally important the two most important well i think there are three absolutely vital pieces of information on the book cover on any book cover the title of the book the name of the author and the name of the publisher um i mean you know you might say really those first two are the most important but i hope that i show with with white spines that i in my opinion at least the name of the publisher is just as important um there are plenty of books that bear the same title as each other but there are of writers who share a name and in the case of me and the other nicholas royal neither of us wanted to change our name um, why should we um uh, and we are all the time uh, both of us were, were being uh, confused one for the other the BBC sent me a payment a couple of years ago that was for him. Um, I also do stuff for the BBC, so uh, I could quite easily have kept. Um, I knew it was for Nick, so I got in touch. And um, yeah, there's, there's just, I mean, you use the word uncanny. It is uncanny when you've got two people with the same name. Um, it becomes even more uncanny when they do the same thing, when they write books. Nicholas Royal also wrote a book about the uncanny as well called the uncanny yeah uh so when you've got and we're both very interested in birds we've both done books about birds um this is the book i so i've fallen for this i've bought a field guide to this guide to bird watching which is the other nicholas royals and then yours is ornithology they weirdly sort of came out around the same time as well i think they were both sort of 2017 yes it's like we can't stop ourselves we are i mean we are quite different we're quite different personalities um we've done events together readings i think we come across quite differently but we are drawn to we're both drawn to the uncanny um and to 
different manifestations of the uncanny, in particular doubling, things having the same name, things looking like um, doppelgangers, we're both drawn to that. So in a way, it makes perfect sense that um, there should be two of us with this. It seemed to me that I wanted to broaden the subject and not just go on about me and him. I wanted to talk to some other writers. Um, I've been friends for years with uh, since the very since the beginning of the 1990s with a writer called Conrad Williams. Um, and I remember Conrad reacting to the emergence of another writer called Conrad Williams when when this when the person who my friend Conrad would call the other Conrad Williams when his first novel was published my friend Conrad Williams was taken aback what, what's this another writer called Conrad Williams um, there's a sprinter called Conrad Williams but in a sense that's kind of less alarming for for Conrad because Conrad's not a sprinter <laughs> the fact that there's someone out there with the same name doing the same thing is kind of weird because your list you're you're shelved in the bookshop in exactly the same place and certainly amazon makes absolutely no distinction between me and the other nicholas royal so people are always telling me oh i bought your book and i say which one they say oh uh, an english guide to bird watching this is happening all the time and occasionally i've done i've done events uh and someone presented me with a copy of one of nick's books to sign and i thought oh, i'll sod it and i just signed it and um, I think he has probably done the same. And you talk about AJ Ashworth, who is a very good writer in her own right. Um, yeah. She speaks about getting confused with Andrea yes. Ashworth, who, who wrote Once in House on Fire. Yeah. And AJ Ashworth speaks about getting someone who was a quotation, fairly high profile writer, uh, and then submitting to Andrea's agent who confused her. Uh, and then asked her how life was in LA and yeah. apologizing for AJ apologized, says that she's not Andrea. AJ said she got a glimpse into the life as it could be. I know you and Nicholas have gone on to be successful writers in your own right. And, and so is AJ Ashworth, but just the kind of whole, and you talk about Comrade Williams and the, the sort of promotion that they made for his, this, this other Comrade Williams Kind of, is there something in there just about that the dreams of being around so don't necessarily match up to the reality and the kind of sense of lessons you've learned? When I was first published in was in 1984 or 85, I forget now. I think it was 84. But so only a couple of years after I picked up that copy of Annika Van's Ice. Um, and it was in uh, a series that I'd been collecting for years. And maybe I had a full set at that point, which was the Pan Book of Horror Stories. Um, and I was published in volume 26. The series would later end at volume 30, I think. But I remember thinking when I sold that story to the Pan Book of Horror Stories, I am not going to be able to walk down the street. I'm going to, you know, people are going to be stuck. Oh, are you Nicholas Royal from the 26th Pan Book of Horror Stories? Yes, yes, I am. <laughs> uh, would you like me to sign your copy? Um, and you very soon realise that it's not like that. Um I mean, for some writers, yeah, it's like that. Uh, for, for Ian McEwan or Julian Barnes or Henry Mantel or whatever, it's like that. Um, but for most writers, it's not going to be like that. If you have to accept that reality is slightly different from from your dreams of what it was going to be like, that's fine. That's just like growing up and maturing. That's perfectly fine. But at the same time, I think it's important to have these dreams. Um, you know, I do a lot of publishing as well as writing. Um, I uh, run a small press. 
and I worked for another publisher. Those writers, when you're publishing them for the first time, it means a lot to them. And it means a lot to me to do that and to give those writers that opportunity. And and yes, some of those writers will end up seeing a copy of their book in a secondhand bookshop. As I absolutely love seeing copies of my books in secondhand bookshops. And I love it when there's something written inside them. Um, even if it's something like um, I once saw something written in a copy of my actual first novel, which was called Counterparts, and one person had bought it for another and she'd said, oh, I bought this a week ago. Um, how was I to know? Um, or, or something. <laughs> so obviously something terrible has happened to, to the, the poor recipient of this book. And she described it as a book about, I don't know, alienation and despair or something. How was I to know? God knows what happened to the poor recipient of the book but she was still given it presumably um and i you know i love that i love the fact that my books are in secondhand bookshops and will have another life but there's a there's another novel coming soon then and there might be a fault to white spines um you're obviously very busy with nightjar press and um editing the best of british short stories which come out every year but Nightjar Press is, is is a publisher that you set up. And what I find interesting about this, Nicholas, is that it's limited edition copies. Uh, it's a limited print run, but each is a chapbook signed by the writer of those um, those stories. And and they include writers such as M. John Harrison, uh, Alison Moore, yeah. uh, Booker Prize, Booker Prize uh, listed writer. What is it about then giving these books a kind of limited run, but a kind of real special quality in the fact that they are signed? Well, I think that the short story is special. Um, So while I obviously love anthologies of short stories and collections of short stories, I also think that individual short stories are special enough to have their own cover, their own ISBN, um, and indeed, so to be published in chapbook form. Um, And so that's what that was the idea behind Nightjar, which I started in 2009. Um, each title is published in an edition of 200. Occasionally, there's I, I do 300 because um, you mentioned M. John Harrison. It got so stressful when I published Mike Harrison's last but one story in Nightjar um, with his fans because he has lots and lots of fans. Um, it got quite stressful trying to make sure that regular Nightjar uh, readers were all able to get copies in addition to all of the Mike Harrison fans who wanted to get copies. Um, So when it came to doing a a new story by Mike, um, I did 300. But again, still a limited edition. Um, But um, in most cases, it's 200. They're all signed and uh, numbered. And going to that trouble, I'm trying to show that there is something special about the short story. It's it's worth going to that amount of trouble um, over it's worth designing um, or it's worth, you know, creating art in, in, in most cases, usually uh, a photograph, which in most cases is taken by me, but it's got an opportunity for me to exercise a different artistic muscle. I love, uh, I love taking photographs. I just think that the short story is that special. It, it needs its own cover and um, it needs to be signed. I like to publish them. Well, they, they're published in pairs and it's all about finding a story that another story can kind of talk to. Um, here's two stories that have the same name, The Lake by Livy Michael and The Lake by John Fox. 
Um, so two stories, that's a pair of stories. Somebody said to me once, oh, it's also exclusive. I mean, it is by definition exclusive, but that's not why I do it. I, I think I number them and, and stick to this idea of the limited edition because otherwise I just, I wouldn't have the room for them. Yeah, I, I love Nightjar. Go out and buy them. You get in your hands on a on a on a limited, uh, which isn't something that we get too much of these days for various reasons, you know. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it it sounds you know like it it does give it that sort of sense of special, you know, special quality to it. And there's a limited number of them in the world, and there's a way that there's a limited number of you know these original picadors. One of the kind of greatest ironies about this book is is that White Spines is that. It's a book that you will kind of want to, obviously you'll buy, you'll want to keep on, keep hold on to without sort of being too cheesy. But it is a book that you kind of want to push on to people because it is just about, it is, you know, it's for people who love books in all the kind of different forms, love picking up secondhand books. And it's a book you kind of want to pass on as well. If you look, if you look at the spine, it does look like a picador um, as well. But yeah, it's been a pleasure, Nicholas. And thanks very much for joining me uh, today on the Rippling Pages podcast. Thank you for having me, Liam. Thanks so much for Nicholas to join me today's episode. And of course, my biggest thanks to you for joining me as well. If you've enjoyed today's episode, why not give it a five-star review on your favorite podcast provider? And of course, join me next time where I'm going to be joined by Christina Bendek and Robin Myers. And we're going to be talking about Salt Crystals, a new book published by Charco Press. Thanks very much. <laughs>